Friends, would you turn with me, please, to the words that we find in the prophecy of Hosea, Hosea's prophecy in chapter 3. Hosea's prophecy in chapter 3, toward the end of your Old Testaments, and reading the whole chapter. And the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man, and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So I bought her for fifteen shekels of silver, and a homer and a lethek of barley, and I said to her, You must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Afterwards the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. And they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. James Montgomery Boyce, the late pastor of the 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, once wrote, The third chapter of Hosea is in my, chapter, in my judgment the greatest chapter in the Bible because it portrays the greatest story in the Bible the death of the Lord Jesus Christ for his people in the most concise and poignant form to be found anywhere. And so this evening I want us to consider this great chapter. I'm not sure if I would say it is the greatest chapter, but it is certainly, I would say with Boyce, one of these great chapters in Scripture. And I want us to consider it as we prepare our own minds and as we prepare our own hearts for coming to the Lord's table together. We're going to look at the chapter under two headings. We're looking at the requirement and then the restoration. The requirement and then the restoration. First we have the requirement and you see that in verse 1 where Hosea focuses on his commitment to his faithless wife. Hosea's commitment to his faithless wife. We can begin with a word of introduction. In chapter 1, we're introduced to the prophet Hosea. We're told that he was the son of Beeri, and we're told that he prophesied in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, the kings of Judah. We're also told that he prophesied in the days of Jeroboam, the king of Israel. This particular prophet is living during a time of prosperity. In 931 BC, the United Kingdom of Israel and Judah split following the death of Solomon and the northern kingdom of Israel's rejection of David's royal house. About 200 years have passed since that event and the northern kingdom are now enjoying a season of secular prosperity. They seem to be flourishing, but while they may be enjoying secular prosperity, they are also experiencing spiritual Poverty. And this prophet Hosea has been called by the Lord to speak into the situation of increasing apostasy. 
Having noted the introduction, we can move into the imperative at the beginning of verse 1. The Lord speaks to Hosea and he commands him to go again and love a woman. Now we have already met this woman back in chapter 1. Her name was Gomer and she is described as being a wife of whoredom. Some suggest that this description means that she was a prostitute, but in the context of the book of Hosea, it doesn't simply mean that she was a prostitute, but that she was a promiscuous woman. And the Lord tells Hosea to go again and to love her. The Lord isn't telling Hosea to put up with her or to tolerate her or to endure her. The Lord is telling Hosea to love her to devote himself to her, to attach himself to her, to be intimate with her. And in many ways, that command is going to be very difficult for Hosea to comply with because of the way that Gomer has been behaving. She has been loved by another man, literally, and this is even more painful to read it in the Hebrew, loved by a friend. Gomer has been intimate with a friend, with a neighbour, with a man other than Hosea, her husband. And not only that, she is also described here as being an adulteress. The wording that the Lord uses indicates that being loved by another man wasn't a one-time lapse for Gomer. She didn't just do it once. It was her persistent and habitual way of life. If you were to go into Hosea's hometown and you were to speak to the people who lived there and say to them, tell us a little about Gomer, they would blush, they would smile awkwardly and they would say, well, Gomer's an adulteress. What Hosea's been told to do is shocking. At some point following their marriage and the birth of their children that we read about in chapter 1, Hosea's wife has left the family home and she has gone off with another man. And she is showing no intention and no indication of ever coming back. And the Lord is now commanding Hosea to go again to her and to love her. We move though from the imperative to the illustration in the second half of verse 1. The Lord has just told Hosea to go and love Gomer and he says that Hosea's love for Gomer is an illustration of his love for Israel. Hosea's conduct and commitment, his dedication and devotion, his affection and attention toward Gomer is a picture of the Lord's unfailing love for the northern kingdom of Israel. Back in Deuteronomy 7, the Lord had said that he had set his love on the people of Israel. Then he deepens that in Deuteronomy chapter 10, where he says that he has set his heart in love on the people of Israel. And now the Lord likens his love for his people to the love that a husband has for his wife, his bride. But Israel, like Gomer, have been faithless. The Lord accuses them in verse 1 of turning to other gods. They literally keep turning to other gods. They keep worshipping the false gods of the peoples and the nations living around them. They keep violating that first commandment that the Lord gave to his people at Mount Sinai, that they were to have no other gods before him or besides him. And things go from bad to worse as the Lord accuses them of being lovers of cakes of raisins. These cakes were a delicacy, a delicacy that would be offered in the temples and shrines of all these false gods such as Baal. And once a worshipper had offered or dedicated his raisin cake to his god, 
if he wouldn't burn it or anything like that, he would then eat it himself as an act of devotion, an act of worship to his particular God. Tim Chester describes it like this. It seems a ridiculous thing to highlight, but perhaps that is the point. Imagine a churchgoer opting for a heretical church over an evangelical church because they serve donuts after the meeting. But that is exactly what the Israelites are doing. They prefer Baal to the Lord because Baal offers better cakes. But despite Israel's faithlessness, the Lord, like Hosea, still loves his wayward bride. Now, friends, as we consider this verse, we are being given a picture of our own condition. That is what Hosea is communicating to the people of Israel. He is to tell them that they are guilty of spiritual promiscuity, guilty of spiritual adultery, guilty of idolatry. And he does this by saying to them, look at my faithless wife. Look at how she's gone off with that other man, my own friend. And that is exactly how you have been treating the Lord. And that is still true for ourselves, friends. Every time we put something or someone before the Lord, every time we prioritise something or someone above the Lord, every time we pursue something or someone instead of the Lord, we are behaving like Gomer. We can be saddened and we can be scandalised when we hear about someone being unfaithful to their husband or their wife, and, and rightly so. But I wonder, are we as saddened and are we as scandalised over our own acts of unfaithfulness toward the Lord? Do we see it as spiritual adultery? Do we see our condition as the Lord sees it, as the Lord describes it? But as we consider this verse, we're not simply being given a picture of our condition, but also a picture of the Lord's commitment That is what Hosea is communicating to the people of Israel. He's telling them that yes, they have been spiritually promiscuous, just like his own wife Gomer, but he's also telling them that the Lord remains committed to them. He is the God who has set his heart, his love on them. He is the God who takes his marriage vows, his covenant promises seriously. He's saying, look at how I am staying committed to my wife in the midst of her faithlessness. And he's saying, that is how the Lord is toward you. That is how the Lord loves you, despite your faithlessness and unfaithfulness toward him. And you know, friends, that is true for ourselves. The gospel tells us that there is nothing in all of creation that can separate the Christian from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Absolutely nothing. The gospel tells us that the Lord loves his people with an everlasting love. The gospel tells us that our confidence, our ultimate assurance, isn't found in our commitment to the Lord, but in the Lord's commitment to us. In 1999, I can believe it when I read that it was 1999, but in 1999, the Christian rock group Third Day released a song called I've Always Loved You. And in the song they sing, Don't you know I've always loved you even before there was time? Though you turn away, I tell you still, don't you know that I've always loved you and I always will. Perhaps you're here tonight and the devil has been telling you every single reason as to why you should not sit at the Lord's table this evening. Perhaps you're here tonight and you're feeling like Gomer is a perfect but painful picture of your own spiritual condition. 
Perhaps you're here tonight and you're full of regret and full of remorse at the things that you have said, the things that you have thought, the things that you have done. You, you're sitting here tonight and, and you wish that you could turn the clock back. Maybe you have even decided to sit back from the table because you wish that you could turn the clock back. Or maybe you're listening online tonight and you should be here, but you feel so wretched, so unworthy, and you've saying, I wish I could turn the clock back, but I can't, so I will just stay at home. But my friend, if you are in Christ, then you have a Lord, you have a heavenly bridegroom who says to you this evening, I have always loved you and I always will. That is one of the reasons why I love singing the Horatius Boner hymn, I Hear the Words of Love at a Communion Season. And we're going to be singing it in a few moments' time. And in the hymn, Horatius Boner sings, My love is oft times low, my joy still ebbs and flows, but peace with him remains the same, no change, Jehovah knows. My love is rubbish. And friends, I don't want to offend you this evening, but your love for the Lord probably is pretty rubbish. But his love is perfect. His love is beyond compare. His love knows no change. My Christian brother, my Christian sister, I want to encourage you this evening not to lose sight of the one who remains fully committed, 100% committed, so committed, absolutely committed in love to you. As Mark Dever writes, Gomer's only hope was in a love that she never deserved. And that is our only hope as well. So here is the requirement. This requirement that Hosea is given to go and love this faithless wife. And it's a picture of our low condition, but also a picture of the Lord's loving commitment. But we move from the requirement to the restoration. Look at verses 2 down to 5. And here Hosea focuses on his reconciliation with his faithless wife. In verses 2 and 3 we see the restoration of Gomer. Hosea begins by focusing on the redemption. Look at verse 2. Let's note where Hosea finds Gomer. And she's not at home. And that's obvious. But she's not in the home of the man she had run away with either. Hosea finds her in the marketplace. He finds her in the auction mart. He finds her being sold to the highest bidder. Gomer has found herself in debt. And the only way that she can pay off those debts is by selling herself into slavery. And now Hosea proceeds to buy her back. He puts up 15 shekels of silver and a homer and lethic of barley. He empties his bank account as he attempts to buy back his wayward bride. But he still doesn't have enough. And so once the bank account is empty, he goes on and puts up the monetary equivalent in barley. And after the redemption, Hosea focuses on the restoration. Look at verse 3. We can imagine the uneasy silence, the awkward silence, as Hosea and Gomer trudge back from the auction mart back to the family home. And the awkward silence is broken by Hosea as he turns to his wife and he begins to speak to her. And he tells her that from now on, she will dwell with him for many days. She had been so fickle. She had been so faithless. She had been so flirtatious. She had been so flighty. She had been so prone, as Jodo had us sing last night, so prone to wandering. But now she is to dwell with him. She is to remain with him for many days. 
He goes on to tell her that she is not to play the whore, a broad term referring to any unacceptable behaviour, any promiscuous behaviour. He goes even further as he tells her that she will not belong to another man. Some of you will remember the interview that Princess Diana famously gave where she said that there were three parties in her marriage. And here's Jose and saying, Gomer, there is to be no third parties in our marriage from now on. It's me and you. Me and you. And finally he tells her that he will be the same to her. He will not be intimate with anyone but her. He will not be engaging in any promiscuous behaviour and he will dwell with her for many days. He will remain with her for many days. And then in verses 4 and 5, we move from the restoration of Gomer to the restoration of Israel. The Lord begins, well, Hosea begins by focusing on the removal. Look at verse 4. He speaks about the Lord removing certain things from the people of Israel. He's going to remove the kings and the pillars. And the princes, he's going to remove the sacrifices, he's going to remove the ephods, he's going to remove the household gods. In other words, the Lord is going to remove, he is going to take away all the political and all the religious symbols that the people of Israel have been clinging on to, that they have been relying on, that they have been trusting in. This is very much a a reference to the Assyrian invasion that would take place in 722 BC. Assyria would come along and they would empty out the land of Israel, even emptying the land of the people. And that event is only 30 years away. It's coming. But after the removal, look at verse 5, there will be a restoration. Hosea looks forward to the children of Israel returning to the Lord their God and seeking him. They've been so unfaithful and it seemed that nothing would wake them up. It seemed that nothing would bring them to their senses. But the removal of all their political props, the removal of all their religious supports would have the effect of turning them back to the Lord, throwing them back onto the Lord because they will realise that only the Lord and the Lord alone can truly save them. And not only would they return to the Lord, but we read in verse 5, they would also return to David their king. Now, we've already noted that in 931 BC, they rejected the house of David. They turned their back on the southern kingdom of Judah. They said, we will not have Solomon and his sons reign over us. We will go our own way. But in chapter 1 of Hosea, the Lord had spoken about the children of Israel being gathered with the children of Judah under one head. And now Hosea speaks here about Israel seeking after the king who would come from David's house in the south. And Hosea closes by saying that they would come in the fear of the Lord and to his goodness or blessing in the latter days. Hosea doesn't give a specific date concerning when this will take place, when this restoration will occur. He only says it will occur in the latter days. And the New Testament makes it very clear that these latter days have come. And they refer to that period between the ascension and the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is both the Lord, yes, but also the son of David. I actually find it quite interesting. It's it's only occurred to me over the last few months that Jesus is born in Bethlehem in the south, but he grows up in the kind of Nazareth, Galilee area in the north. He is the king of the north 
and the South, the one who will unite all peoples under himself. Well, friends, as we consider these verses, we can see the consequences of rebellion. That's what Hosea is communicating to the people of his day. Gomer found herself in the slave market. She found herself in the place of destitution and disgrace. She found herself being sold to the highest bidder. And Israel would also find herself in a place of degradation and disgrace, left destitute by the Assyrian army as they destroyed all her political supports, all her religious props. Hosea's message is very blunt to the people. He is saying to them, there are always, always, always consequences when a person chooses to rebel against the Lord. There are always consequences when a person decides to break faith with the Lord. And that is true for ourselves. Every sin carries terrible consequences. Every act of unfaithfulness leaves us in a worse condition than we were in before. Can I just be honest with you, friends? Can you just be honest with me? When was the last time that we engaged in an act of unfaithfulness and we were in a better condition than we were before? When? Every instance of spiritual adultery leaves us like Gomer in a place of destitution and disgrace. The word of God, friends, makes it clear that every sin... Every act of unfaithfulness, every instance of spiritual adultery leaves us with an unpayable debt. But not only an unpayable debt, but also deserving of death. That is the consequences. But as we consider these verses, we don't simply see the consequences of rebellion. We also see, wonderfully, the cost of redemption. That is what Hosea is communicating to the people of his day. He subjects himself to shame and scorn. To reproach and ridicule as he steps into the marketplace to rescue his wife and he empties his bank account to Redeemer. Can, can you imagine the laughing stock that he was have been to so many in his day? Can you imagine the looks of pity that he would receive from others in his day as he goes into that marketplace and he says, I'm here for my wife. And they say, well, she's up for sale. And he says, okay, I'll buy her back. And I'll I'll, I'll even remortgage the house just to have her. And that is how far the Lord's love for Israel would go. He would allow his own name to be subjected to scorn and shame, to reproach and ridicule as he went about the process of redeeming his wayward bride. And friends, that is what we see in the gospel. The New Testament frequently uses this language of redemption, the payment of a price to speak about, to describe the work of the Lord Jesus Christ on behalf of his people. In Matthew chapter 20, Jesus says that he has come to give his life as a ransom for many. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says, you were bought at a price. In 1 Peter 1, Peter speaks about being redeemed, not with perishable items such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. And then in Revelation 5, John hears the heavenly choirs praising Jesus for ransoming a people from every tribe, every language, every people, every nation, with what? With with his blood. The gospel presents us with a Jesus who steps into the marketplace of the world where he's subjected to scorn and shame, reproach and ridicule, 
as he goes about the process of redeeming his wayward bride to the praise of his glorious grace. The gospel presents us with a Jesus who goes all the way to the cross. And there at the cross he cries out, it is finished. The Greek word is tetelestai. And Dr. Robert would be able to tell us that that word is marketplace terminology, meaning it has been paid. And it's been paid in full. And it's been paid forever. I read the following story this week that illustrates this wonderful truth. When A.J. Gordon was pastor of a church in Boston, he met a young boy in front of the sanctuary carrying a rusty cage in which several birds fluttered nervously. Gordon inquired, son, where did you get these birds? The boy replied, I trapped them out in the field. What are you going to do with them? I'm going to play with them and then I guess I'll feed them to an old cat we have at home. Gordon offered to buy them and the lad exclaimed, Mr, you don't want them. They're just little old wild birds and they can't sing very well. Gordon replied, I'll give you two dollars for the cage and the birds. Okay, it's a deal, the boy said, but you're making a bad bargain. The exchange was made and the boy went away whistling happy with his shiny coins Gordon walked around to the back of the church property, opened the door of the small wire coop and let the struggling creatures soar into the blue. The next Sunday he took the empty cage into the pulpit and used it to illustrate his sermon about Christ coming to seek and to save the lost, paying for them with his own precious blood. That boy told me the, bird were, the birds were not songsters, said Gordon. But when I released them and they winged their way heavenward, it seemed to me that they were singing... Redeemed, redeemed, redeemed. And tonight, friends, we can sing with joyful boldness. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth and followed thee. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? We can sing this evening, redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. Or if you're from a maybe a slightly different generation, you can sing with Wren Collective, He's Our Rescuer. He's our rescuer. Well, friends, as we close, let me ask you a question. Have you received this redeeming love that is found in Christ? This is a very painful chapter, I know, and maybe it really resonates with some here tonight or some who are listening online. It is a very painful chapter. But it's not a marriage guidance chapter. If that, if that is how people read this chapter, they are misapplying this portion of God's word. This chapter is about the gospel. And if you're here tonight, friend, and you are not in Christ, then this is your God-given opportunity to receive this redeeming love, receive this amazing love, receive this costly love for the very first time, this love that is found in Christ. And if you're here tonight and you are in Christ, then this is your God-given opportunity to receive this redeeming love, this amazing love, this costly love afresh. And you receive it not only as you hear it being proclaimed, but you also receive it as you take the bread and as you take the wine from the Lord's table. These are visible, visual objects 
that represent a body that was broken, that represent blood that was shed to rescue you, to redeem you, to restore you into full fellowship with the one who has loved you with an everlasting love, a love, friend, that will not let you go. How amazing it is to come to the Lord's table again and not be thinking about our lack of commitment, but about his great covenant commitment toward his bride, his people, his church.